Sometimes the most dangerous things in life are the things you can't see. In this sermon series from Table Church, we're identifying some of those invisible enemies that want to take away your joy. Things like narcissism, greed, and isolation. So join us as we learn how to combat these enemies of the soul. And as always, feel free to reach out to us at tablechurchdsm.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning, Table Church. I'm Jamie Sosnowski, and I am part of the advisory council, and I help on the prayer team and in the nursery. And so this is my little plug. If you haven't connected or um, found a place to serve, it's a really great way um, just to meet people. And so I would encourage you to do that. I am here to read Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. Good morning, everybody, and I'm so glad to be here with you all. Thank you for coming and worshiping with us this morning. It's a real honor to have you. And like Megan said earlier, if you're new, we hope to get to know you a little bit. Stop by the Welcome Center. We've got a gift that we would love to give you. Um, And also, I want you to know that we have a membership class coming up for Table Church. It's going to be on November 5th at 9 o'clock. It'll be at our ministry center. Uh, That's our little office slash ministry space over by Smoky Row. And if you want to be a part of that, please just write membership on your connection card and we will be in touch with you. Uh, But membership at Table Church is simply about us saying, hey, this is kind of my family and I want to know how I can participate and contribute the best I can. Uh, Coming to the class, it doesn't doesn't bind you to anything. You can just come just for information. That's totally cool. In fact, I, I want everyone to come to the class, whether they become members or not, because you get a chance to hear who we are, what we're about, why we exist, where we come from all that great stuff. And so I would encourage you to sign up for the membership class on November 5th. I, wanna, I also want to put in my two cents about the hot chocolate giveaway. Look, this is, I'm pumped about this. It's, uh, you would not believe when we first launched, uh, like Megan said, we did this kind of stuff. We did one with popcorn. We did one with uh, Coke bottles we left for people. It's amazing how many people showed up at Table Search just because they got popcorn on their door or something like that. And, uh, you know, some people, and I'm one of them, you know, you don't get a real charge out of walking up to a stranger's door. You know, we're not going to knock. We're just going to leave it there. But this is an opportunity for us to kind of come in weakness. And for so often, the, like, the church wants to be in power. You know what I mean? Like Christians for so long have wanted to just kind of hold control of things. This is a chance to like say, no, I'm, I'm just coming to share that something that I think you, you'd benefit from. Something that I love. Something that I, I think would give you life. Come, you're invited. There's room, right? And so I encourage you to sign up, circle the one thing on your connection card, and we will get you plugged into the hot chocolate giveaway. So we're starting a new sermon series today called Enemies of the Soul. Enemies of the Soul. Kind of dramatic sounding, isn't it? And it kind of is, actually. So we're looking at some temptations, some traps that can easily poison our souls, that can suck our joy from us. These are things like narcissism, which we're going to talk about today. It's going to be a good time. And uh, things like uh, greed, 
Things like isolation, these are enemies of our soul. God made us to flourish, and these are things that want to try to destroy or suck away uh, our, our joy. And so uh, I, I'm looking forward to it. I think it'll be beneficial for us all. I know it has been for me writing these uh, sermons, as it often is uh, very convicting. So 150 years ago, Alexis de Tocqueville took a famous journey from France to America because he wanted to study this culture of this new world, this new democracy called America. And he came and he studied the culture and he, and he wrote a work that has become a kind of a classic. It's called Democracy in America. And, and on page one, here's what he says. He says, each citizen is habitually engaged in contemplation of a very puny object, namely himself. That's what he had to say about Americans pretty much nailed it, right? And then 40 years ago, Christopher Lash wrote a widely read book called The Culture of Narcissism. And in this book, he argued that Western culture is intrinsically narcissistic. And now that doesn't necessarily mean every one of us are like clinical narcissists, but it means that this is kind of the ocean that we swim in. We've got a culture that's pulling us towards ourselves, like, like kind of compelling us just to look at ourselves and think about ourselves all the time. This, this is the air that we breathe, he would say. Now, he couldn't have guessed just how right the next 40 years would prove him to be. Like, it's now completely normal in our culture to broadcast a curated image of yourself that simply, you know, is to make you look successful and desirable. There's a new term emerging right now that describes the age we live in. You've heard me talk about the age of authenticity before as, as philosophers and cultural critics use for our age. That's this idea that, you know, we live in a time where really living out what's, in, what, well, like what's inside of you is considered to be what's virtuous. Well, there's another term emerging. It's the age of profilicity, which I think is kind of a wacky phrase, but it's the age of profilicity is what some thinkers are calling our age. And I'll tell you what that is. Profilicity is where your identity is curated through the public profile you create. So in order to win the approval of your peers, you create a digital or public profile. And, and what they're saying is that that's actually where our identity is more and more anchored in. Regardless of whether or not this reflects who you really are, that's actually irrelevant in the age of profilicity. All that matters is that you have constructed this thing in the digital sphere in order to demonstrate who you want to be or whatever. And, and, and so that, that's what some people are saying. Like identity is being like where we anchor our identity is kind of shifting to the digital sphere, to the things that we present ourselves as, as opposed to like who we actually are. Now, whatever the case, that's, you know, that's different, isn't it? And today, even pastors are trained to do what I think is the very opposite of what Paul calls us to do in the passage that Jamie just read for us. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. That's what the church is supposed to look like, according to Paul. Chuck DeGroat tells a story about a young pastor who got word that he just received a book deal. The young man exclaims, I've done it. Today I launch, he says. Today I launch. 
Like this is the mentality of a young pastor when even the church has bought into this fantasy that the only way to be effective is to win the contest of influence. The Apostle Paul had every reason to think highly of himself. He was an up-and-coming rock star within his community. He had the perfect resume. He even says so. He says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, that means he's really good at keeping the law, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, listen, faultless, he says. When it comes to keeping the law, I was faultless. As a young man, Paul studied under the great teacher Galamiel. So Paul was brilliant, he was passionate, he got stuff done, and he was on the fast track. He was the young talent that everybody kept their eye on. You can imagine a young Paul, Apostle Paul, saying, ah, today I launch. All that changed for him one day when he met the resurrected Jesus on the side of the road, got knocked down and blinded for a few days. And suddenly now, Paul was a part of the very people who, that he was persecuting. He was no longer part of the elite, the powerful, the respected class among his people. He would spend the rest of his life running from persecution. When Paul writes this letter to the Philippians that we're reading from, he is now an old man. He's under house arrest. He's waiting to appeal his case to Caesar himself. Throughout his ministry, Paul has been beaten and whipped and imprisoned multiple times. He's been excommunicated from his community. At one point, he's arrested, and he, while being transported to Rome uh, via ship, they run into a terrible storm. The ship runs aground, breaks apart, and sinks. And look, I, if I ever get arrested for preaching the gospel, you know, and then I find myself like drifting in the ocean, clinging to a piece of wood. That might be the point where I'm like, okay, God, I think I'm done. Like, I think I'm going to throw in the towel now. It's been a good run. I'm out. And there's no retirement for Paul. He has one mission in life, the gospel. And he's not thinking about his brand. He's not thinking about his power. He's not thinking about money. He's thinking about how to have a greater witness for the gospel. And even as the boat is in the storm, listen, Paul, the prisoner, is pastoring his captors. He's like, they're freaking out. And Paul's the only one that's like, chill. You know, he's like, guys, listen, God's going to protect us. Don't worry. Nobody's going to die, he says. All this is to say that when Paul writes these words in Philippians chapter 2, these are not just religious platitudes. This is the real Paul that we're getting here. He's not angling to win their approval in order to build his profile. This is as real as it gets for him. Don't look to your own interests, but to the interests of others. You can almost hear an urgency in his voice. This old man, he's, you know, he's under arrest. He's going to appeal to Caesar. He doesn't know. He might die. He might be executed. This might be the last chance he has. There's an urgency to his voice. Guys, don't look to your own interests as more important than others. Think of others as, as better than yourselves. There's like this cry in his voice. And then he goes on and he gives, he gives the rationale for why they should be like this. Paul, why should we act this way? What is there for me to gain in this sort of a life? 
And he tells them why they should be this way. And it's because it is the way of our Lord Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, which, by the way, is about the worst way to go. And so Jesus, who being in very nature God, by the way, they did a study recently, uh, they kind of quiz some, you know, Christians on their theology. I don't know. I'm not sure what I think about these sorts of things. They published the results to see how many heretics are there in evangelicalism. And uh, sure enough, more than, half of, uh, more than half of us believe a pretty significant heresy, which is that, you know, that Jesus was not God, but was created. It wasn't eternal, but was created and came into being. Uh, and so I just want to take a moment. This passage uh, clarifies that for us, doesn't it? It says that who being in very nature God. Jesus is not, it's not like there was God and then he made Jesus. Like Jesus is God. The son of God is God from eternally past. That's what we're, we're talking about, the Trinity here, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus was not created, but he did come into being. He was begotten. He became a man. The preexistent Son of God became a man, which makes this all the more powerful. He's the complete opposite of a narcissist. He willingly gives up his divine platform in order to give himself to others. Jesus is the anti-narcissist. He is pure love, pure others-focused love. Look, in a culture that breeds narcissism, Jesus' followers must actively resist the pull of our self. Like, you can't just be passive about this. We have to build things into our lives that force us to follow Jesus in this. And it's not always going to be fun. Like, you will scream and shout and kick like a little toddler when asked to think of others first. How do I know? Because it happens to me all the time. Now, when we try to define the word narcissist, it usually conjures images of like a charismatic, confident leader who is utterly self-absorbed, uses people who get in their way uh, or to get their way and doesn't care about the damage that they cause. And that's true. That's, that's certainly the case many times when we encounter somebody who is a narcissist um, but psychologists will clarify that that's just one way that narcissism manifests sometimes. It's much more complex than we generally realize. There's one expert named Keith Campbell who says that narcissism can simply refer to a basic personality trait that's present in most, if not all of us, to some level. You know, like we all act like we're all, we all act narcissistically from time to time. And I think that's true. Um, but all the way up to a full blown personality disorder. That requires treatment. Now, as a disorder, narcissism can manifest in seemingly opposite ways. On the one hand, you have what's called the grandiose narcissist. This is kind of the classic example, what we often think of, the ambitious and charming individual. They're sure of themselves. They know all the right answers. And look, we're often drawn to these people because of their confidence and certainty. And who doesn't want a little bit of that in life, right? And we're often drawn to them because they make us feel safe or maybe they're important and well-respected and so it makes us feel important and well-respected. Maybe you're in middle school or high school and it makes you feel cool to be around one of these people because everyone else thinks they're cool. And so we can kind of get some you know, positive feelings just be, by being associated with these people. This is why we, we follow them, we, we flock to them almost like, like they're magnets. But 
Their inability to empathize and their need to be in charge will often leave a wake of emotional carnage in their path. So that's one kind of narcissist. There's another kind, and it's what we would might maybe call the vulnerable narcissist. Not maybe, this is what it's called. Um, and these are uh, sometimes also called the hidden narcissist, and they aren't necessarily, in fact, you probably won't find one of these on stage. You won't probably find one of these behind a microphone. Um, but they, they suck everybody into their orbit by their perpetual neediness. Um, they're often introverted, often kind of depressed maybe, easily hurt by criticism. Their egos seem very fragile, but in spite of that, they see themselves as deserving of special treatment. So this is the person who can't ever seem to help themselves, but expects everybody else to help them. That's the vulnerable narcissist. And so we have these two opposite, spectrum, uh, opposite ends on the spectrum. And, and these, like I said, this is a, a personality disorder that can be diagnosed by a professional, right? Um, but, but the thing I want to say is that we're all tempted by this. And not only are we tempted by this, but we all, we all express this and show this and live this from time to time, don't we? Like there's a little narcissist in all of us, I think. And unfortunately, when I talk about culture, when I say, you know, earlier I said Western culture or whatever, and that's kind of a problematic phrase anyway, but when I talk about culture, I'm not just talking about out there. I'm not just saying there's a problem out there. You know, I want us to understand there's a problem in here. It's a problem in the church. Narcissism is a, maybe even more so, I don't know, it is a problem in the church, and we need to figure this out. In his book, When Narcissism Comes to Church, Chuck DeGroat uh, writes that the characteristics of narcissism are often interpreted as strengths in churches when looking for pastoral candidates or leaders. It's often those very people that we actively seek because they're confident, usually have strong leadership capabilities, they're sure of themselves, they've got the answers, you know. And so what this means is that when we discuss the problem of narcissism in the church, look, we can't just gossip about what a bad thing it is. We can't just talk about that person or how bad it is out there or something like that. Like there is a system in place. There's a system in place that we participate into some level, like, and it breeds the very monsters that we despise. And so lately, narcissist hunting has become like a sport. Like we label people this, this politician, this pastor, this leader, this CEO, like we, we like to throw the label out there on people. Oh, they're a narcissist, aren't they? You know, and, and it, it's like, it gives us a little bit of a charge to be able to label somebody else as that. And Chuck DeGroat says, perhaps there is some power in being able to diagnose, to label what both mystifies and terrifies. Look, most of us in here aren't actually qualified to make a diagnosis to somebody. But we do know that by, by calling someone a narcissist, we are often trying to take back a little bit of the power that we feel like has been taken from us. And I can, I can understand that. But it's, it's, it's not really debatable, though, that we, you know, we may not be able to like necessarily label people this, or probably shouldn't, unless we're professionals. Nonetheless, we can still identify the impulse we can identify it within ourselves and we can see it playing out in our, in our culture, in our churches. 
And until we confront this system that we've created that kind of feeds off of these traits, like it's never going to go away. This is a system, the system I'm talking about is a system where, where shock value, entertainment, and programming are what it takes to keep even faithful Christians paying attention. It's a system where the church has to perform a greater and greater monkey dance on stage in order to get even solid, lifelong, mature Christians to pay attention. All the while, displays of Christ-like love, fruit of the Spirit, these things are met with a yawn or maybe just ignored. So look, that system will not change until we all confront the little narcissist inside of us, the thing that says for me, the thing that says, look, I'm only valuable unless this room's full, you know? Like that's the part, that's the thing I gotta do. All of us have this inside of us. Maybe for you it's like, uh, you know, the church, I'm only gonna go to a church that's gonna like build me up but never confront, never challenge, never ask anything of me. Everybody has a part to play in this. See, church culture is not something that is determined by some invisible they. <laughs> it's determined by us right here. We're doing it right now. Creating a healthy church culture is something we must all buy into. And it requires each of us to lay down our pride at some point and consider someone else as better than ourselves. And so, what experts say is that at its core, narcissism is about entitlement. And that's something that both pastors and congregants can have. Chuck DeGroote tells a story about a young church planting pastor. He's going to start a new church. Uh, he goes to assessment. That's uh, church planting assessment, something all church planters do. We go, we spend a weekend. They kind of grill you for a weekend to see if you've got what it takes to plant a church. And so he goes and he, he wows the committee. He's got all the right answers. And they're so excited about this young guy that they, t they, they approve him with flying colors, even in spite of some of the warning signs. I mean, he would say things like, you know, that he couldn't fail. He would even say something like, you know, I, think, I feel like God, God owes me after having been spending so much time as an assistant pastor. It's not like that's this horrible thing, but. And once he moved to the new city, he raised $250,000 for the church, uh, and, but he designates a large part of it as general church planting funds. And uh, these general church planting funds happen to include $25,000 for his down payment on his house, $2,200 for a new wardrobe, $1,000 to rent a convertible to drive to a pastor's conference, money to stock his wine cooler at home for hospitality, and a down payment on a dental procedure to whiten and straighten his teeth. Look, if I ever show up with hair, <laughs> you should probably check the books. Something's going on. I think that we'd all agree, like, that's crazy, you know? But the question we should maybe ask is, how, how did we get here? How did we get to a place where a podcast like The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill becomes like this international phenomenon, you know? What's going on? How do we get to a place where a church planner feels like they have to have straight teeth in order to plant a church? There's work to be done. And here's what I think we need to understand. Narcissism is an attempt to cover up our fear and shame. This is what I, this isn't me, this is, I've, as I've read some experts on this, it's, it's an attempt to cover up our fear and shame. See, it has a wound at the heart of it, uh, and when, when we behave this way, we're usually trying to run from some sort of truth inside of us, some sort of limit, mistake, fault, sin, whatever the case might be. 
And, and more often than not, it's the fear of failing, failing or the, the fear of being found out that, that drives us towards this. And look, of all places, the church should be the place where you can be found out and it's okay. But unfortunately, a lot of times, the church is the last place you'd want to be found out. Galatians 6 puts it like this. If someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. If narcissism is at its heart about hiding our guilt and shame, this should be like a hospital for narcissists, you know? Selfishness and entitlement are the very opposite of the way of Jesus. And that's why Paul tells Philippians that our attitude should be like Jesus who made himself Nothing. So I've got two practices for us today to kind of try to combat this enemy. How do we, how do we strangle the little narcissist in us? I know that's kind of morbid, but seriously, like how do we do that? How do we asphyxiate this guy, you know? And I got two practices. Number one, uh, we, we serve in secret. Serve in secret. We did a, a book club recently. We looked at A.W. Tozer's book, The Pursuit of God. And he, I love this quote. Might be my favorite one in the book. It says, the ancient curse will not go out painlessly. The tough old miser within us will not lie down and die in obedience to our command. He must be torn out of our heart like a plant from the soil. He must be extracted in agony and blood like a tooth from the jaw. He must be expelled from our soul like by violence Expelled from our soul by violence as Christ expelled the money changers in the temple. In other words, like this little narcissist in you, it ain't going to go out easy. It's going to go out kicking and screaming. It's going to hurt a little bit. I'm talking about leaving no note when you do something for someone. About making no post. About doing it in such a way that it's impossible to trace it back to you. And when you do this, and if you do it a lot, your flesh will scream out against you. It will scream no. What if we did that? What if we started doing this? What if we conspired together to become little service ninjas, you know? Like, nobody knows it's us. What would that do to our hearts? How would that form us into ones who can reflect the way of Jesus, who, being very nature, God made himself Nothing. So serve in secret. Number two, the second practice, befriend your fear. Befriend your fear. Like I said, so much of narcissism has to do with creating a false self in order to kind of mask your true self because we're so afraid of being found out. I don't want people to know that this is actually what I'm afraid of. I don't want people to know that this is actually what I've done. I want people to know that actually I'm not very good at that. And so we construct like a, a mask, a false self in order to appear as though we have it all together. This is why narcissists rare, rarely ever say the words, I'm sorry. They will have ingenious ways to not have to say those words and to not have to really mean them. It's like saying he who must not be named. Like they just can't do it, you know? Like they can't say I'm sorry. And the reason is that saying I'm sorry in a genuine way, at least, admits that they've done wrong. They have failed somehow, and that's exactly what they're so afraid to do. And so when I say befriend your fear, I mean figure out, like, what is that limit inside of you? What is that wound, or what is that sin, or what is that, whatever the case is, that you don't want to admit you have, 
learn how to face it, how to admit it, and how to live with it. Deep within many of us, there is a scared little boy or girl that does not want to be found out. Our job is to say to that little boy or girl, it's okay, you can, come, you can step into the light, it'll be okay. It will be okay. If you fail, it's okay. I'll be there with you. Only then can we start to put away our false self. And the fact is, we know the most genuine cure for narcissism, which is grace. God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. You see how this actually does a little jujitsu move against the little narcissist? Like, it's like, oh, actually, my weakness is the, the point where I end is where God can really start to shine. That's where God can really start to do his work. And so the sooner that we own up to our limits, the sooner that we find this point of weakness, the sooner God can use us to do the things that he wants to do. The thing that we run from, the thing that we try to hide and stuff down and make sure nobody knows about is actually the very point at which God wants to use us to do something. And our faith teaches us, our faith teaches, unfortunately, the very thing that narcissists are most afraid to hear, which is, you're not enough. I'm not enough. I don't have what it takes. I am not God. I need God. Our faith, however, also teaches the very thing that narcissists most need to hear. You are deeply loved for who you are. What we want to know, the little narcissist in us wants to know that we're special. That's what it needs. It needs to know that it's special. And you know what? Here's what's kind of interesting. The way of Jesus actually does it actually does tell you that. It tells you that God takes particular delight in you. When we talk about God loves you, you know, this isn't just a generic, general kind of love, just like hand it out like Halloween candy. I don't know these kids, but that one for everybody, you know what I mean? It's like, nope. God takes particular delight in each and every one of us. So befriend your fear. Figure out what limit you're running from what thing in your past you're afraid to admit, stare it in the face and say, it's okay. You can come out. You can you stop hiding now. It's okay. And I, I don't have to tear others down. I don't have to use others. I don't have to be jealous about others in order to be comfortable in my own skin because I know that God takes particular delight in me. I know that failure isn't the end. It's just one more step on the journey. And in that way, your fear can become your friend because it actually, it points us to the end of ourselves, which is where God can do his real work. Fear, fear can become your friend. And so look, if you're tired of yourself, I genuinely believe, I, I don't think I'm a clinical narcissist. I mean, you don't ever want to diagnose yourself, right? I certainly have those tendencies sometimes, like everybody does. Right? I can absolutely resonate with the deep fear of failure that comes from starting something new. I can resonate with the deep need to like cover up the problems and the, the insecurities that I have, that I know I have. Like I, I can understand that impulse for sure. But I have tasted the joy of knowing this radical, absurd grace 
that God offers us that I don't know where else you can get this. I don't know any other system or belief that offers this. Like Christianity, the way of Jesus is it's a kind of this wacky thing. It's so offensive. Like it's offensive, you know, like people when Jesus was talking to be like, that's gross. He's telling these stories about, you know, a son who insults his father and then father comes and like puts a fancy robe on him and welcomes him back and throws a party. Like that's horrible. These workers in the vineyard, the guys who worked an hour get paid the same amount as the guys that work all day. Like this is wacky, you know, this is grace. It's amazing. You don't know how amazing it is until you're willing to face that in you. And when that happens, you can start to you can start to turn that fear, that weakness, that thing on its head and say, you know what? The thing that is my weakness is God's strength. And so the church needs to be a place where if you're tired of yourself, you can find something so much better. <laughs> you can find something so much better. You can find the yoke of Jesus, it's called. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so if you're ready to put down the burden of constantly defending the borders of your own little kingdom, I want to invite you into God's kingdom instead, because it's a place where you don't have to worry about being enough because you already know that you're not. And that's pretty cool. But you worship the one who is. And so if you are ready for that, if you're like, I'm living for myself and I've been doing it for too long, I'm ready to live for somebody better than me. I want to invite you to do that today. Would you close your eyes with me? I'm going to say a prayer. And if you'd like to make that commitment to say it's time to put myself to death and to live for Christ, I want to give you that chance to do that right now. I'm going to pray a prayer. And if this is for you, I want to invite you to simply circle the cross on your connection card before you go, because this is how we can follow up and walk with you on this new journey. So please let us know if, if we can serve you in that way. Just circle that cross. Let's pray. Oh God, we know that each and every one of us has a, a level at which we need to heed the words that you have given us in Philippians. To consider others better than ourselves. To, to not th you know, think of ourselves with vain conceit. That's hard sometimes, Lord. And yet you have given us the perfect model. You who are in very nature God descended not only to be, take on our flesh, our our. Uh, imperfect flesh, but Lord, also even becoming obedient to death, and not only death, but death on a cross. And then it goes on to say, because of that, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord, because there's a glory in dying to ourselves. And so Jesus, let that be true of us now. Let us have the bravery, the courage to, to befriend our fear, our wound, our sin, our sickness, our selfishness, to lay it before you. And Jesus, today for those of us who haven't yet done that, who haven't come to you in humility and repentance, I pray that we could do that now as we pray, God, take my sin from me and forgive me and make me new. Nail my sin to the cross. I won't want it anymore. It's yours. Thank you for taking it from me and thank you for your grace. And now enable me, Holy Spirit, to live your kind of life, the kind of life that thinks of others first and not myself pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen.